It's been a crazy couple of weeks for Nashville. There's been some major developments announced. Timber prices are hitting all-time highs, and they don't seem to be slowing down anytime soon. And short-term rentals may be the future. All of that and more on this week's Commercial Real Estate Investor Weekly Update. My name is Tyler Cobble, and I apologize that I have been gone the last couple of weeks. I was in Atlanta for my CCIM class, and then uh, last Monday I was actually in driving back from Chicago. A buddy of mine bought a school bus and is going to turn that into a mobile office and RV. So flew up there to, to help him bring it back. But let's go ahead and dive into this week's news with Nashville. So starting off, let's get Andy in here so he can comment on this as well. Starting off with an article from the Business Journal, State of Tennessee Grants and Tunnels for Oracle to Top $100 million, says Economic Development Commissioner. Now, if you didn't know, obviously Oracle announced 8,500 potential jobs uh, by 2031 in Nashville. This is one of the this is the biggest jobs announcement that has ever happened in the state of Tennessee. Looks like uh, you know Oracle could benefit from more than 100 million dollars of state level incentives uh, and related spending for its record-setting tech campus on the Cumberland River's East Bank waterfront. This is part of the River North development just north of the Titan Stadium, uh, essentially at the gate to East Nashville, which is. Really exciting for us because we've been investing and developing in East Nashville for quite some time. So definitely going to spark some more interest over there, uh, which is pretty exciting. They said that uh, it looks like Oracle will have 2,500 employees by the end of 2027 and 8,500 or more by the end of 2031. The average annual salary will be about $110,000 with annual payroll hitting $1.1 billion in 2031. That is a lot of payroll tax uh, and a whole lot of Sales tax, if everybody's going to be living in Davidson County, spending their money here. Uh, looks like uh, it is very incentive appropriate, um, the Economic Commissioner is, is adding, uh, which is pretty exciting. You know, there, there's been some controversy uh, in the last couple of years about uh, economic incentives for all of these uh, businesses that are moving here. It's good to see that, you know, Nashville is still very business friendly, uh, which has been attracting a number of heavy hitters uh, to the area for years. We had Amazon announce 5,000 jobs a few years ago. We had Alliance Bernstein announce, well, I think 1,500, give or take. So pretty exciting. Let's see here. Um, anything else on Oracle? Looks like... The, oh, as part of the funding, the Department of Transportation is prepared to spend $38.4 million building two connections from East Nashville underneath Interstate 24, linking with Cowan Street, where Oracle is under contract to buy so 65 acres, River North. Looks like uh, the tunnel, the Gray Street Tunnel, uh, will go under the highway for use by bicyclists and pedestrians, uh, which is really exciting. And they'll have a wider underpass under, uh, at Cleveland Street. Um, which will allow for vehicle access. That's pretty exciting because there, I know that there are a lot of property right around uh, Cleveland Street on Dickerson has recently traded hands in the last couple of years. There's a number of groups that are working on a bunch of developments right there. So this will only ignite that even further. Uh, looks like uh, I know that they were talking about some tunnels possibly under the water. Oh, here it is. So $175 million of public infrastructure. Um that was approved in a 40 to 0 vote uh, by the Metro Council, which is pretty interesting. I mean, that that is aggressive. All 40 uh, said absolutely to this, uh, which is which is very exciting. So that will include a pedestrian bridge over the river to Germantown, 
uh, public recreation space, greenway trails, stormwater facilities, utilities, roads, sidewalks, and environmental cleanup on part of the site uh, that was a metro landfill for years. I mean, the city is, is ready to spend a lot of money on redeveloping the East Bank, uh, which is great to see. You know, that's where Top Golf is. They've been talking about this for years. So glad to see we're, we're actually getting some traction going on in River North. Okay, moving on. This is uh, from Main Street, Nashville. Nashville poised to get Ritz-Carlton Hotel as part of a new development. Uh, this is over near the KVB Roundabout, uh, which is basically, I guess you could call it South Broadway area. Uh, it's, not, it's, it's basically downtown. So, City of Nashville is about to look a whole lot more luxurious as M2 Development Partners rec- recently announced a $585 million development project. Andy, we've talked about M2 before. Were they involved in a, in a development over in River North? Yes, I think they are on something in River North. Yeah, the Oxtail or something like that, we, or Oxbow. Um, Oxbridge, Oxbow, yeah, something yeah, like Oxbow. that. Yeah, Oxbow. Yeah. So the new development will be located in the so- – okay, so it is Sobro, uh, district of downtown Nashville, right along Korean Veterans Boulevard and Lafayette Street. Uh, as part of a 1.2 million-plus square foot layout, the project will include a two-tower, full-service Ritz-Carlton Hotel, condominiums, apartments, and a signature rooftop restaurant. I read in another article somewhere it's going to be about a $540 million development. Um, I believe one of the buildings is around 32 floors. The other one is 46. So these are two very, very large buildings. Uh, yep. Oh, here it is. Okay, yep. The condo and hotel will stand at 46 stories. The apartment building will be 32 um, looks like some other amenities that they are expecting to be included will be a 560-space parking garage, meeting and banquet areas, 24-hour bellman and doorman, media rooms, a 6,000-square-foot spa, and more. This will be a very, very nice hotel. That's, uh, that's pretty exciting to see. I mean, this area is, you know, you're blocks from Broadway. You're almost right next to the convention center. So you think about the the type of tourists that this will attract. I mean, you're kind of on the edge of downtown, so it's very easy for you to get out to the Gulch um, and to get you know further to, to South Nashville without actually having to be in the heart of Midtown or heart of downtown, um, which is which is pretty attractive. And also, I mean, this is going to by far be the tallest building uh, in that area. There's not a whole lot of uh, very built up structures right there, so. And it's really cool, just as you said, Tyler, that that area is getting some investment now because, I mean, it wasn't until just really the last few years that that whole Lafayette Street area, I mean, and Tyler, you're familiar with the space really well because you have a li- you've had listings there. It was kind of a, it's kind of been a sketchy place to be. So now, you know, with Ritz Carlton coming in, the opposite of sketchy, you know, is really going to set a marking kind of redefining point for the area. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was uh, it was a little bit of a rougher area. Um, it was mostly industrial. There wasn't a whole lot really going on, and uh, you know, City Winery went over there a few years ago, which which really helped uh, you know bring attention to the area. Honestly, there just wasn't a whole lot else going on, and since then, quite a bit of development has been going on that way. And Lafayette is one of the major thoroughfares in and out of downtown, and it and it really hasn't been developed very much. Very similar to Dickerson Pike, so. Um, we just leased a 13,000 square foot uh, space over there uh, to Project Return uh, that used to be a, a, a you know vacated grocery store. Uh, so really excited for them to get that going. We've done uh, we've done a number of transactions over there. Uh, it's a pretty exciting exciting area. 
Okay, this next article is from the Business Journal. Nashville ranks among top emerging office markets for life sciences. That, that's no surprise, right? I mean, Nashville is the hospital capital of the country. Now um, we've got, you know, healthcare is massive here. It's, it's the biggest, uh, you know, uh, biggest business sector um, that we have in the city by far. Life sciences comprise a tiny niche of the nationwide office market, but researchers expect that share to grow and Nashville is set to benefit. Um, looks like Nashville is ranked number five out of 110 U.S. markets for growth potential in the life sciences market. Uh, let's see. It measures the appealing long-term lifestyle for young professionals so that they will put down roots and spend their prime career years nurturing the local life sciences ecosystem. That's interesting. So top five, along, you know, with Nashville at number five, you've got number one, Charlotte, number two, Seattle, number three, Denver, and number four, Austin. Those are, you know, four other cities alongside Nashville that are consistently at the top of just about every list anyway. Um, so it's not really a, a big surprise that, you know, they would be at the top of the list for life sciences. Uh, let's see here. Emerging markets can rise up in the ranks by strengthening the virtuous cycle of having a bigger talent base. Do more innovation, pull in more funding, and attract more people. I mean, it, of course. I mean, you, you read through the article. You're just like, yeah, uh, Nashville is obviously going to be at the top of this list. It does a phenomenal job at, at all of that. Life Sciences is a tiny fraction of the overall office market that makes up 150 million square feet nationwide. They say it's about 3% of that. So uh, let's see. Interesting. Okay. Well, that's really cool. I mean, those are, those are, you know, higher level jobs, right. Uh, that, uh, Nashville could now start to benefit from, which is, which is pretty exciting. So again, I know we say this every week, but keep an eye on Nashville. It's, it's only, it's only growing. Moving on to market watch. So this week's market, uh, was a bit of a surprise to me. Um, I didn't actually realize how large it really is. Uh, but we are going to be talking about Phoenix. Let's go ahead and pull it up. So this is again in the Urban Land Institute's, um, you know, Emerging Trends Report. Phoenix is one of the boom markets, um, along with Austin, Salt Lake City, Tampa. Um, I was again pretty surprised at how large it was. I believe there's 1.6 million people in the MSA, which makes it the fifth largest city in the country. Um, let's see here. Overall real estate prospects, they're number 15 in the country. You know, with obviously Raleigh, Durham, Austin, and Nashville topping that list. They're number 26 in the country in terms of home building prospects. Uh, and they are one of the magnet cities in the Super Sun Belt. So, Super Sun Belt markets are still affordable for businesses and residents. They're kind of those, you know, not quite 18 hour cities. They're bigger, more developed cities. You throw in Atlanta, Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston, San Antonio, and Tampa, St. Petersburg alongside that. Um, and they are, you know, they're in those more. Uh, I guess, uh, temperate uh, climates, and they are, they're just growing well. Um, good business environments, uh, good, better tax environments. So this, this next article is from uh, Motley Fool. Uh, 2021 Phoenix real estate market investing forecast. So they did a great report breaking it down. So yeah, here we go. It looks like the city itself boasts a population of over 1.6 million and spans nearly 516 square miles, uh, which is more than double the size of Arizona's next largest town, which is Tucson. Let's see. 
They have a number of universities, Fortune 500 companies, major foothold industries like healthcare, retail, and tech in the city. And there's a lot to be said about the possibilities that Phoenix presents. I mean, Phoenix is also a very, uh, you know, you've got all the conventions that kind of happen there. You've got a lot of golf that goes on in Phoenix. It, there's, there's quite a draw to this market, which is exciting. Uh, looks like they will face some key challenges in the, in the next months ahead. Uh, which it's they're noting rising construction costs and home prices, which, I mean, let's be honest, unless you're, you know, California, New York at the moment, just about everywhere is dealing with that. Uh, looks like building permits are showing promise, prices are on a tear, and local financial health seems to be improving. It's pretty exciting. So building permits, let's see. They have a major housing supply problem. I mean, again, everybody's kind of moving. There's a lot of, of immigration to the uh, super Sunbelt cities. Um, and the Sun Belt in general. So there's just not enough, you know, you can't build enough houses to keep up with that demand. And so you're seeing some major increases in pricing. It looks like the median price is about $345,000 on a house, uh, which is $15,000 higher than the country's median. And that's an increase of 17% year over year. That's massive. I mean, you know, if you look at uh, traditionally how you know, what housing housing increases at year over year, it averages, what, 3%? So to see 17% in a single year is is huge. Looks like rents have also jumped 8.4% in the last year and are sitting at an average of 1587 a month. So below the national average for rent, uh, but there, I would imagine at that, at that growth rate, uh, that'll be changing sometime here soon. Foreclosure and mortgage delinquencies are trending downward. That's pretty good considering COVID and the pandemic and everything. Consumer sentiment has been on the rise for a while. Uh, I mean, you've got low interest rates. You've got a decreased home to price ratio. That's a good. That's a good combination for a market to have. Um, so looks like their unemployment was also relatively low compared to the rest of the country. They they peaked at twelve point five percent. Uh, in the pandemic, uh, which was below the nation's 14.8%. And they're already back down to 6.5% unemployment. Um, so it looks like they they lost about 84,000 jobs in the last year. I mean, sitting at 6.5% unemployment, all things considered, is is really, really strong. And then this just gets further, further into the data on that. Okay, this next article is from Fox 10 Phoenix. Phoenix area housing market booming as many pay far over selling price. You know, this is this is a <laughs> this is a phenomenon that we are tracking in many of these, you know, I, I say southern, um, you know, really just kind of the southern part of the U.S., right, where everybody's moving. It seems that way everywhere. You know, sellers are just in a, in a great market. But also, I mean, if you sell your place, where are you going to go? Are you going to go rent? I mean, you're also going to have to pay the same prices that everybody else is paying. Looks like last three or four months that I've seen in 30 years beyond nothing you could ever prepare for. It's lunacy, says someone that they were interviewing. Um, the ratio of buyers to sellers is currently around 10 to 1. Wow. 10 to 1 buyers to sellers. So, I mean, think about that. I mean, in Nashville, you've got, you know, everybody's saying they're, they're one of – you know, a dozen offers or more on every single property. If you have 10 to one buyers to sellers, you're probably getting 30, 40, 50 offers on every single house because you know those people are going out and they're making offers on multiple homes just trying to get something to land. Can you imagine having to sort through all of that? 
And it's got to be incredibly frustrating. How do you stand out? Looks like uh, someone made a $1.5 million offer. They raised the sellers and raised the price to $1.6 million, and now we're $200,000 over the value of the area. I mean, it's you're, you're seeing a lot of these cash buyers moving out of California. They sold a much bigger home or, or you know, dollar, dollar price-wise, and they're starting to get desperate to just find anywhere to land. So they'll just they'll pay cash, they'll overpay, they'll close in 15 days. It's it's really wild to see what's happening in the residential market right now, and it's not just in popular cities like Nashville and Austin and Raleigh Durham. I mean, it's it's basically everywhere all over the Sun Belt. Let's see here. Yeah, first day it's on the market, you'll see six realtors waiting to get in the house. There's just nothing else to look at. Gosh, that'd be so frustrating. Well, very, uh, I mean, good good problems for Phoenix to have, right? I mean, it's it's better than the opposite problem of having way too many homes out there and, and uh, nobody really wanting to be in the area. All right, moving on to the future of commercial real estate. Let's see what we've got for you today. Are Zoom towns the new boom towns? This is an article from NAOP, uh, which uh, is a commercial real estate association, if you're not familiar with them. Um this is interesting. So it's basically talking about how, how you know, millennials or, or, you know, the workforce is moving into these towns where they can get roomier homes, yards, and just have good internet connection because they're working almost remotely. So it says, uh, since the onset of the pandemic, countless office workers have fled crowded apartments in the urban core and are spreading out in more remote, spacious locations dubbed Zoom towns. Uh, looks like they all have roomy homes and yards, lower costs of living, and proximity to outdoor activities like hiking trails or the waterfront. I mean, that's Chattanooga in a nutshell. Um, you're looking at, you know, Portland. There's there's so many little cities like that that, that are benefiting from this, um, you know, from this phenomenon. Looks like, uh, you know, they, you know they also come with their challenges, too. So, if you think about how many people are moving into these smaller cities really quickly, you're going to have infrastructural issues. You're going to have housing issues. It's going to be tough to really make that happen. Um, you'll have increased traffic, uh, an influx of new students into the school systems, demands on broadband and internet connectivity, which I guess Chattanooga wouldn't really even have to worry about because they're at gig, you know, gig city. Uh, and expectations for creature comforts of city living, like the same-day delivery for online orders and vast restaurant takeout options. Yeah, you do not get that out of smaller cities. That is one of the reasons that uh, I will not leave uh, the urban core of Nashville. Among the biggest pressures in these locations is that of the housing market with lower inventories, rising prices, and higher demand. I mean, it's uh, we're seeing that across the country. It seems like everybody's just talking about that, how difficult it is to find living space right now. And we're going to get into this here a little bit later, but construction prices have just absolutely skyrocketed. So it's it's tough for builders to make it make sense, too. All right, moving on. Oh, here we go. This is the this is from PropMoto.com. Uh, lumber prices threaten viability of sustainable timber towers. And this is not just for timber towers. Uh, this is for basically anything that requires wood construction because there's just so much demand for it and their the supply is uh, it's just been disrupted so this this article says the price of lumber has nearly doubled over the last 12 months I, this must have been written within the last month because it's now more than tripled i think it's up like 330 percent year over year which is wild um so 
This has threatened the viability of one of the most promising new construction techniques. I mean, the Urban Land Institute has had a, a number of, of uh, presentations on this, you know, timber construction, um, a high-rise timber, uh, because it is environmentally sustainable compared to steel and concrete. It's, it's lighter, so it's easier to transport, and you can actually, um, you don't have to build it on such a, a stout base, uh, again, because it's lighter. So, uh, let's see. There's a number of reasons for the spike in the price. COVID restrictions hamstrung lumber processing facilities. Of course, nobody could work, uh, which have already seen increased demand from the residential sector. Speculators also helped bring prices higher, both by buying lumber futures and by stockpiling inventory. All of this means that the commercial industry could soon be feeling the effects of a nationwide lumber shortage, and these spiking lumber prices threaten to derail commercial real estate's push into mass timber construction. Um, and, you know, timber is not the only thing that has been affected by this supply chain disruption. You know, we're working on the wash, a car wash uh, conversion to five micro restaurants at a bar in East Nashville. And on that project, you know, when we first started working on it, I think our equipment budget was around $150,000. And we got notified it's going to be thirty to fifty thousand dollars higher because of the the price of stainless steel now, uh, which is incredibly frustrating. Looks like Heinz has been a recent leader in timber construction, developing projects in seven-story timber towers in Minneapolis and Atlanta, two ten-story towers in Toronto, with plans to do more timber towers in Vancouver, Denver, Chicago, and Australia. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Oh, that's cool. It has it has the desirable aesthetic of an old warehouse, but solves the problems of energy efficiency, acoustics, and light. You know, obviously steel and concrete are great, but when you build out of them, you're going to naturally have a more cold, echoey uh, type of construction. Whereas when you use wood, it's just it seems warmer for whatever reason, and and it, it's not usually nearly as loud. Um, so that's that's interesting to hear. The market for cross-laminated uh, timber, CLT, is expected to reach $1.6 billion by 2024. It'll be interesting to see what happens uh, from this. I mean, honestly, with this massive spike in materials cost, there's going to be some alternative researchers, right, that are going to be looking into how can we possibly, you know, what other materials out there now make sense. I mean, we're – so I'm, I'm under contract right now to, to develop 18 – homes um in in north nashville and we we had a meeting today we might actually just build it out of steel and so we've got a call with the contractor tomorrow to, to figure that out because you know we're, we're looking at the numbers it's three and a half dollars a foot more right now uh to buy to, to build out of steel than it would be to use to use lumber and because of that we're looking at okay well why don't we just go ahead and spend the extra money and do something architecturally significant uh, with steel, you know, because steel can sometimes give you, um, you know, some certain, you know, you know, a certain aesthetic or a different kind of structure that you couldn't necessarily get out of a, a traditional lumber build. So that's one thing that we're starting to explore is, you know, how can we recapture the value um, and make that money back? Looks like mass timber-based construction is quicker. Uh, it's approximately 25% faster than steel or concrete, resulting in 90% less construction traffic and 75% fewer workers on the active deck. That's interesting. I mean, it is, uh, it's, there's no, there's no doubt as to why lumber has been such a popular construction material for years and years, but now it's, it's becoming apparent that we just don't, 
It may not be the best. Wood requires less carbon to produce. Wood stores carbon. Within a certain height, mass timber construction gives builders an easy and financially viable way to differentiate their projects aesthetically while promoting environmental, social, and governance, ESG goals, uh, for prospective tenants. Yeah, it's... uh, Oh, here we go. Prices are already delaying projects. Nationwide, 52% of respondents in a recent survey of the Association General of General Contractors said they are currently experiencing project delays based on a shortage of construction materials. The survey found 77% of respondents had an owner postpone or cancel a project that was scheduled to start in 2020 or 2021. I mean, that's, uh, that's just, it's crazy. I mean, we've got, there are tons of developers that are doing that same thing here in Nashville. Xeranthus is saying, I wouldn't trust a wooden skyscraper. They're actually incredibly strong. I mean, you're not going to go build, I mean, from what I understand of, of these timber, um, of using timber for these towers, I mean, you look at Heinz, the, the tallest that they're building is 10 stories. I mean, I, I don't know that you could go build a 46-story tower out of timber, um, but, you know, it's it does it is interesting to solve that that kind of in between, because you know once you get over five stories, just based on the kind of construction you have to do, almost everybody has to go to steel. Um, but yeah, I mean that's interesting. I, you know, obviously engineers are going to have to do a whole lot of calculating to make sure that that would be safe because they couldn't they couldn't build it if if it wasn't. What they do um, a lot of times, Zoranthus, uh, is that. Uh, they it's called cross laminated timber or mass timber they take the boards and they actually high heat glue them together so that you can essentially make one gigantic you know 50 feet long 100 foot long board so but it's made out of wood and it has this really high efficiency glue so these things are strong man i mean if you go look up how strong wood is by itself wood is you know, you can usually support, there's like studies where you can support a whole house if it were balanced correctly on a few two by fours. Obviously, it's never going to balance correctly, so that wouldn't happen. But the problem with wood is usually that you just can't get a piece of wood big enough. So the idea is that through glue and other processing factors, they can make just these gigantic pieces of wood and therefore support more weight. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Evan is saying, what is a good way to find value add properties? Evan, I've got a video on, on how to find commercial real estate somewhere in the archive. If you just go search for that. Uh, but man, I would, I would go find a broker in your area. That's already pounding the pavement and knows all the owners. Um, and, and they could, they could definitely help you out that way. All right. This article is from biz. Now multifamily rents record largest post pandemic rise yet per report. U.S. multifamily rents grew 1.6% year-over-year in April, which represents the largest percentage increase since the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic in March of 2020. Overall, 117 out of the 134, or 87% of the market surveyed, experienced positive year-over-year rent growth. Let's see. Looks like month-over-month rents were up 0.7% in the surveyed markets, um, increasing by $10.00. To fourteen hundred and seventeen dollars in April. Um, let's see. Well, 
Rent increases were particularly strong in gateway markets, pointing to renewed demand in places previously hit hard by the pandemic. So it looks like of the top 30 U.S. multifamily markets, 24 experienced month-over-month rent growth of more than half a percent in April, which is, that's a pretty good jump. Uh, Let's see here. New York is still getting crushed. They saw a month-over-month uptick in 0.6% of of 0.6% rents. Uh, but average rents are still down 12.6% year over year. San Francisco eked out a monthly increase of 0.1% in April, uh, but they're still down 7.7% year over year. Look at that. The less expensive markets are crushing it. Less expensive markets have done better year over year. Uh, the Inland Empire turned in a 9.4% increase compared to a year ago, while Sacramento and Phoenix grew 8.4% and 8.1% respectively. That's crazy to see some of those, uh, some markets just absolutely crushing it and others just still struggling. It it makes you realize how much, how a state, uh, and I know Sacramento is obviously in there, so maybe California didn't have as big of an impact on that as as some of the other cities, but how much a state or a local government's um, reaction to COVID really drives investor and resident sentiment. Uh, you know, you look at Phoenix. I mean, I, I would imagine you've got just as many people moving there from California as you do to Nashville and, and to Atlanta and to, and to Texas. And that's got to be one of the reasons that rents are increasing like that, right? There's there's consumer demand. It's one of those opportunities, Tyler, about real estate that's different from if you're investing in real estate versus investing in stocks, right? If you invest in stocks, it's the same stock, no matter if you're in California or in Tennessee or New York or in or in China, right? But for real estate, it's it's true when they say that every market is really local. Every market, every set of demographics, who the employers are, who are moving there, what is the you know income tax structure, what is the business structure there? All of these factors are really important to you know determining the strength of your real estate market. And because of that, if you do your research and you know what attracts people, like what we're covering here on our emerging markets on the ULI report, you can do really well even in the face of Corona, right? Like we saw with some places like Phoenix growing eight percent year over year, you know, during Corona. That's uh, that's incredible to see. Yeah, that's. I mean, it makes that's a huge, huge difference. It's just what a stark contrast. Uh, between the cities. All right, moving on into private equity deal dive. So short-term rental company Sonder to go public through a SPAC deal at $2.2 billion valuation. This is from BizNow. If y'all have been listening for the last you know couple months, you know how I feel about SPACs. Um, they're a little sketchy, but uh, they are special purpose acquisition companies, and those they've been absolutely taking off lately. It seems like every single company that wants to go public is, go, is doing it through a SPAC, um, and it's probably because their financials last year don't look all that good, right? And so if they went public in, in the traditional manner, it'd be tough for them um, to really um, properly do that at a valuation they want to see. Uh, so they're, they're kind of taking this roundabout way. Um, Sonder, which leases and manages blocks of apartments for short-term rentals, will go public through an acquisition by a SPAC called Gore's Metropolis II. Uh, the SPAC raised $450 million when its founders, private equity buyout billionaires Alec Gore's and Dean Metropolis, 
took it public in January. Looks like the SPAC deal values the company at $2.2 billion. Uh, they cracked a billion-dollar valuation through private investment back in July of 19, which is impressive on its own, right? I mean, that's that's pretty amazing to be able to hit a billion-dollar valuation on private uh, investment. Looks like the deal expected to generate $650 million in cash proceeds, having been financed with $200 million in private stock sold to investors like Fidelity Management and Research Co., BlackRock, and Senior Investment Group ahead of Saunders' appearance in the public markets. So they are all probably doing very well. Saunders' most frequent method of acquiring space to rent out for vacationers or business travelers was by master leasing either blocks of apartments within multifamily buildings or entire buildings, designing and managing them to function more like hotel rooms than private, uh, than permanent living accommodations. This sector got absolutely destroyed last year. We were involved with a number. Uh, there were a bunch of those kinds of groups in Nashville. They were much smaller, right? I mean, you know, I'm not talking about Sonder. I'm talking about local groups that were going out and doing rental arbitrage. Uh, I mean, we were doing that ourselves, right? We, we had a few units where, you know, we, we had signed long-term leases on houses, and we were ar rental arbitraging them on Airbnb, right? Because we pay the owner his rent, and then we, you know, Airbnb it for the month, and we collect the difference. And the problem is... When, uh, when the pandemic hit, rents went to zero. Nobody was traveling. And so you think about how, how dangerous that is. You're still having to pay rent every month, but you have no traffic. So a lot of these businesses just got hit really hard. Oh, here we go. Model left some landlords with massive vacancies. When the coronavirus pandemic squashing of the travel market forced it to pull back some of its operations, leading in at least two cases to lawsuits from landlords. I mean, of course. Looks like uh, representatives from Saunders said in January that it had kept occupancy above 70% through 2020. That's pretty amazing. Um, and its operations were certainly less deeply affected than traditional hotels. Okay, diving even further into this, this one is from Fool.com. Saunders becomes latest company to go public via SPAC. Is it investable? That's a good question. Okay, so let's see. We kind of already talked about who Sonder is. Uh, looks like they reportedly laid off or furloughed 400 employees during the pandemic, which was a third of its workforce. Um, I mean, you know, no surprise considering, like I said, I mean, March, April, May, the Airbnbs that we were managing, we had about a dozen at the time, went from, I would say, 90-something percent occupancy to zero overnight. Much of the reason why Sonder had to make those cuts likely had to do with its business model. They signed master leases with large property owners to secure an inventory of short-term rentals. Uh, yeah, and when the pandemic hit, they got left holding the bag. Let's see. Oh, it says, while the pandemic burned the hospitality industry, short-term rentals have been a well-reported success story. I, I mean, I could see how they might have started picking back up in June. We were already out of the out of the sector by them we don't need to refresh on SPACs uh well actually you know what let's dive into this because you know if you're if you're um if you're not as familiar with SPACs maybe you haven't been listening uh as much so they're special purpose acquisition companies that are designed to raise money that will be used to take a private company public through a merger at a future date uh which is why which is why they get referred to as blank check companies Basically, they go out and they raise all this money, and then they go and find a company to take public. Um, 
An investor in a SPAC is really an investment in the management team's ability to find a suitable company to take public in the near future, right? So basically these guys went out, I think they said it was January, they raised all of this capital and then they went and found Sonder. Let's see. Business Insider doesn't love the model. Uh, it's apparently describing Sonder as a billion-dollar apartment rental startup billed as a hospitality industry disruptor. Uh, stay tuned to see how this latest prop tech SPAC merger plays out. I mean, it, it that has been the funny thing about, as yeah, Zoranthus is saying, uh, getting those WeWork vibes. That's <laughs> absolutely right. You start talking about, you know, this this sector and, and SPAC. Um, I mean, you know, we'll see what happens with WeWork. Uh, you know, it, it seems like in real estate nowadays, and Andy loves to talk about this, if you throw the, the word prop tech on anything and like you have a website <laughs> that is like slightly more advanced than the next person, it seems like that's the way to raise money in real estate now. You just call yourself a prop tech company and you have something barely even to show for it. And everybody's like, yeah, well, 10x that valuation. <laughs> it's housing as a service. Yeah, housing as a service. Yeah. Uh, we'll start a RAS company, rent, rental as a service. Exactly. <laughs> um, let's see. Yeah, that's probably, yeah, that's about it, really it for this article. Uh, so I guess stay tuned to see how that pans out for them. So this is a preview of Sonder. Uh, I mean, they do have, a, they have a great website. It's, it's very similar to Airbnb. Uh, if you've, if you've ever used the Airbnb website, and essentially you come in here and it's got a map on this side and you can look at all the different units and pull them up and you can uh, you could search through through Nashville. You could type in a specific address. You can go by your dates, how many guests, price filters. Obviously, you can create an account. Um, so it's it's basically a private Airbnb. Right. I mean, Sonder is, is working for themselves. Um, I don't know that you could just go list a unit with Sonder, but yeah, that's them. Okay, now we are moving into PropTech. So PropTech, uh, as Andy and I were just talking about, uh, is, you know, it's a big, um, it's a big sector right now. I mean, there's a, there's a reason to keep an eye on it because there is a lot going on in the world of commercial real estate that needs to be updated. It needs to be changed up. So this is an article from PR Newswire. Why Hotel, I guess, Why Hotel announces new pop-up hotels in Miami and D.C. Latest pop-up locations highlight continued growth in both new and long-standing markets. Why Hotel is a hospitality platform and operator announces that Miami and D.C. will be the latest hosts for its signature pop-up hotel model. Interesting pop-up hotels. Okay. Each location will operate 100 plus units and will be open to guest bookings during the initial furnished during the initial leasing process. Guests of these new Y Hotel locations will enjoy all of the amenities of a modern furnished luxury apartment with the added benefit of innovative and safe approaches to hospitality. That's interesting. Um, let's see here. Marking an exciting new market for the company, Y Hotel Midtown Miami is its South Florida debut as the company continues expanding its pop-up hotel presence nationwide. 
Uh, as a top-tier market with high tourism, rich culture, and thriving business sector, Y Hotel is well-positioned to complement all that this vibrant community has to offer with luxury accommodations that fit every traveler's needs. Looks like they're already accepting reservations. So they're calling these apartments, though. So brand-new luxury apartments are located in the heart of Midtown Miami with a variety of shopping and dining just steps away. Um, let's see. I mean, Andy, this article doesn't go too far into it, but it's, I mean, is this a, uh, here's about, okay, here's something, information on Y Hotel. Y Hotel is a hospitality platform and operator with a focus on multifamily buildings. It operates pop-up hotels out of vacancy or newly built luxury apartments during the initial lease-up process. Okay, well, that makes, that makes total sense. Y Hotel's curated spaces and hand-picked neighborhoods can be booked like a hotel for one night or for hundreds of nights allowing guests the chance to truly settle in and spread out. I wish that that had been at the very front of the article. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, look, when you're going through the, uh, the apartment lease-up um, phase, whether you're new construction or, or, or uh, renovation or heavy value-added renovation or whatever, I mean, you do have quite a bit of vacancy, and it just takes a while for the market to absorb that. So, I mean, this is actually a brilliant idea. This is a great way to quickly monetize um, – you know, some vacant space just sitting there otherwise. I like that. Looks like uh, settle, here's, their, here's their website, whyhotel.com. Uh, this is neat. I mean, this is, a, this is a very clean website. Settle in and spread out. Curated spaces and hand-picked neighborhoods that you can book like a hotel. Whether you're with, with us for three days or three months, discover a different way to stay. I wonder where they've got okay. So they've got locations in Tyson's Corner Greenboro Drive. I don't know where that is. Midtown Miami uh, and Washington, D.C. Cool. I mean, that, that's pretty neat, right? Like, you, you get kind of that local experience. If it is an apartment building, uh, you kind of get a different experience than you would if you were staying in a traditional hotel. Looks like they do extended stay, corporate and group, as well as just your, your typical vacation traveler. All yeah, right. Tyler, I wanted to pull this one out because, I mean – especially in direct relationship to what we just looked at, what we looked at Sonder, right? They're a $2 billion company now, and Y Hotel is much, much, much smaller. They're only operating a few of these things. But just there is a lot of opportunity in this space, and it's a trend that's been happening for a long time now, and it's really been accelerated because of corona, and I think it's only going to continue to accelerate, is that the difference between apartments and hotels the line there is starting to blur it is becoming more and more common for your apartments to have you know more flexible stays or your hotels to be more uh, oriented for extended stay right we've talked about extended stay america here extensively because people like that sort of service right and i like the y hotel model here their biggest challenge is obviously going to be why do people come to their website and find them and directly book through their website? But their model of, you know, partnering with companies that or real estate buildings that need to get their stuff leased up during the initial lease up phase, they probably can get a much better rate than with Saunders' model of standard rental arbitrage. So I just thought it would be interesting to kind of compare those two together 
Yeah, I think that's really neat. I mean, it's a it's an interesting problem to be solving, right? Because, I mean, every apartment has it to a certain extent. And, you know, what if you start offering these fully furnished apartment units for rent? And then whenever, you know, we've talked about doing this on one of our projects that we're doing out in Chattanooga. It's like, okay, well, we're going to have to lease up these apartments. Well, why don't we do Airbnb in the meantime while we're working through the lease up for all of them? I think that's a pretty interesting way of, of solving that issue. All right, moving on to reading REITs. This week, we are talking about REIT earnings. So this is an article from uh, Seeking Alpha. Uh, REIT earnings recap, inflation overshadows strong quarter. So overshadowed by concerns about rising inflation, a frenzy of real estate earnings reports over the last month has provided critical information on the state of the real estate industry. That's the really interesting thing about tracking REITs is that since they get traded like uh, stocks, you can see very consistent, like, I mean, in real time, investor sentiment on different, uh, on, on different sectors. Results were better than expected across most major property sectors with roughly 80% of the 170 equity REITs and 40 mortgage REITs in our coverage universe beating consensus FFO estimates. That's really exciting. Positive surprises were primarily in the residential sectors where self-storage, manufactured housing, and Sunbelt-focused single-family and multifamily REITs saw accelerating rent growth. We were talking about that earlier. The Sunbelt, they're crushing it. Across the equity market, and particularly within the REIT sector, two macroeconomic trends have set the course early in 2021. The post-vaccine sector rotation and concerns over rising interest rates and inflation. I was having this conversation with a developer friend of mine today. He just re, he just uh, refinanced a portfolio of single-family homes. He's a big build-to-rent developer, and he got three percent interest on on his refinance for all of these houses. And it's you know I just said to him, when do you think you'll ever see three percent interest rates ever again? And he said, I don't know, man. I don't think I don't think we ever will. And you think about how I mean that's crazy. So yeah, of course. I mean, people are starting to think, well, I mean, interest rates are bound to rise. I mean, it's basically free money. Historical trends indicate that REITs as a whole have performed quite well during periods of rising interest rates and inflation, and that commercial and residential real estate have historically exhibited moderate to strong inflation hedging properties. That's pretty interesting. So diving into it, who paid rent? Uh, real estate earnings scorecard. So it looks like storage did the best. Student housing did probably, I don't know what, the worst in terms of the earnings scorecard. Let's see here. Equity REITs are higher by 13%, while mortgage REITs have gained 11.6%. This compares with a 9.7% advance on the S&P 500. Um, let's see here. Andy, is there anything specifically that you want to dive into and talk about this? Tyler, if you scroll down a little bit more, I think looking at the REIT sector performance chart, oh, the yeah, one, that. that one, I think this is the wow. best one to look at here. So, so regional mall 2021 performance, 37.6% compared to 2020 negative 43.7%. That's remarkable how quickly, how much that, that has bounced back. Right. Um, One to pull out, too. We talked about the cannabis sector of real estate. Oh, yeah. Well, cannabis crushed it in 2020. <laughs> Up 170% in 2020, then plus another 16% this year. Not too bad. 
Wow. We need to start investing in cannabis. <laughs> That's amazing. 170% in one year. I mean, the, to put this in perspective, if you are listening on the podcast instead of watching this on YouTube, the next highest 2020 performance was timber at 8.5%. Or I'm sorry, it was self-storage at 8.6% compared to cannabis's 169% increase. That's that's remarkable. Looks like the, the I don't that shouldn't be funny, but it is funny to me that the prison REIT sector is the worst performing. They are the only one that is still negative this year. They're negative five point seven percent, and they were negative fifty four point five percent last year. So that's uh, that's interesting. Private prisons, I, man, they're going yeah. down. Private, hey. I mean, private prisons are a that's a very that is a touchy subject uh, to me. Why? Why is that a private industry? But we don't need to. Get, we don't need to get into that. It is but, one of those things, Tyler. We don't have to get into it. But you know, when we talk about, we'll just compare that marijuana versus private prisons. Whether or not you you support it, you believe in it, um, the trends are moving in one direction and moving away from the other, right? And so right. you can see that reflected in your real estate. Whether or not you personally support it, you're for marijuana against, for private prisons against. Yeah, part of this analysis, you have to realize, hey, there are headwinds against a certain sector and there are tailwinds behind a certain sector. And those are things that you want to be aware of. Yep, that's exactly right. Let's see here. Some of these charts are really interesting. I highly recommend you all go to SeekingAlpha.com and, and look through these because, you know, these these graphs are very visual and they really help you understand, you know, what's going on um, in these different sectors trying to see if there's anything else that we should highlight on this looks like a lot of them have had some pretty you know these three have had pretty decent rent collection um v vici properties gaming and leisure properties mgm growth properties so i mean of course uh casinos are you know a little little iffy uh, but those three did well the biggest Let's thing see. to point out wow is look that at manufactured the- housing look at that yep See, I mean, this is why these graphs are so big. 2021, 17.5% boost. Every sector of housing there gets an A grade, pretty much, whether it's single family for rent, self-storage there, which is kind of related to housing because, you know, you self-store more stuff when you, you know, people own stuff, they have stuff to store. Uh, And then apartments, they're all A grades. They all did incredible. And so did, look at that lumber look at this this chart on lumber prices i mean they're like consistently over the last since january of 1996 lumber prices have been steadily fluctuating between what looks like 400 dollars per what is that cubic foot um 400 per cubic foot give or take per board foot yeah is it per board foot so then this year 1400 that is over 300 percent absolutely wild wouldn't you love to be invested in a lumber re right now? Let's That's go remarkable. buy some trees, Tyler. Yeah, let's go. Let's, I know I was thinking about that. Like, man, maybe we should go uh, just buy some timberland. I mean, why not? That's been a popular investment for years anyway. All right, moving on to this week's wild card. Andy, what have you got for us? Tyler, it's something that really has been in the news a lot lately. We've heard a lot about... Bitcoin and the blockchain, especially with, you know, our 
our dear friend Elon Musk being on SNL a couple weeks ago, and he was talking <laughs> oh, he about he did some wonders to a couple different coins. He he definitely can move the market, but you know what he's doing is he's bringing exposure to Bitcoin and blockchain and all these other things. And just like in 2017, it, there Bitcoin and blockchain is starting to really gain prominence in the news again. But one interesting thing about the blockchain which is the technology that Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies run off of, is that the blockchain is not just for coins and for you know the ability to send transactions and money between each other. They also have a lot of relevance for things like commercial real estate. So blockchain technology is a digitized distributed ledger that immutably records and shares information using software protocols and advanced cryptology. And I know that probably doesn't mean anything to 95% of people listening. It just essentially means it's like a big log, okay? Everything that happens, it's like on a big log that says, I sent money to this, you sent money to this, or this XYZ happened and ABC happened. And it just it's a big record and it's distributed across a bunch of computers. It's not all on one central server in a very, very basic terms. So there are these things called smart contracts, which is related to, if you have heard of a cryptocurrency called Ethereum, that's what Ethereum does. These smart contracts are essentially code. They're just code built into a blockchain, essentially where you have an if-then statement. So one common example, of an if-then statement is, I want to give you money as a loan, right? But I need a percentage interest rate back, okay? So you can literally code it in. If I give $100 of Bitcoin to Tyler, and Tyler needs to pay me 10% interest rate per year, and so it tracks if that happens, and if it doesn't happen, it automatically takes the money back. It's stuff like that where you can have automatic, essentially, software within the blockchain. So what is going to be happening with potentially real estate is this idea called tokenization and ownership, where you can have these contracts that are performed that essentially determine whether or not you own real estate. If you've heard of something called NFTs, which are non-fungible tokens, essentially that just means it's a way to prove you own something. And so Taco Bell has been selling NFTs and they sold an art piece at some famous art gallery for like $50 million as an NFT, which is literally just essentially a digital proof of ownership. So using this blockchain specialized technology, you can buy security tokens that might represent ownership of an asset, like a parcel of real estate, a share in a company owning real estate, or a real estate investment fund, related rights, as in being able to get dividends, distributions of shares of profits, or anything else, right? And what that potentially can allow us to do is make real estate more accessible and make real estate more liquid. One of the greatest problems with real estate right now and why it is currently, and this is crazy maybe to you and me thinking about it. But if you go look at the big asset managers, 
JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, the guys who are placing money for the billionaires and 100 millionaires who engage their wealth advisory services. Real estate isn't considered an alternative asset class. It's not even considered a main asset class. It's considered an alternative asset class, as in something that's different, kind of outside the normal realm. And that's kind of weird to think about because, oh my gosh, everyone knows real estate, if you buy it right, it's a good investment. One of the reasons it is considered this alternative asset class, because unlike stocks or bonds or you know, uh, municipal bonds or you know, even currencies, foreign exchange currencies, real estate is illiquid. It, is, it takes a long time to sell right? A commercial property, if you want to sell it, maybe you have to list it on the market for three months, and then it has to go under three to six months of due diligence, right? And so, you know, you could potentially take you half a year to a full year to sell any asset, and that's if you're lucky, and sometimes it takes more. So for real estate, with global real estate about $230 trillion, most people can't access it, and it doesn't trade right back and forth between each other very often. So if real estate tokenization happens, right, you can take an asset, create these smart contracts and tokens, and sell these tokens, right? So for example, if we wanted to say for a building that we owned, okay, I'm going to create 100 tokens that represent a 1% ownership of this property. Then all of a sudden, you know, based on whatever the property is worth, people can sell those tokens in between each other all the time, every single day. It doesn't even have to go through legal, you know, and getting a lawyer involved and making sure all that happens or getting recorded with the state, you know, and getting recorded every time there's a transfer of deed, tax, and all that kind of other tax. You can just sell these ownership tokens between each other at any time, right? And because of the technology, the blockchain technology, you know it's yours, it can't be replicated. And so obviously the question is, how do I know people are not cheating me? How, how do I know that it's not fake? Well, that's the technology aspect of it. And you have to really understand the technology aspect of it. But assume that you can, assume that you can know that it's not fake. Then all of a sudden you see the possibilities of allowing more people to get access to buying fractional shares of real estate, right? It eliminates and reduces the costs of intermediaries and lowers minimum investment requirements and offers the potential to unlock trillions of dollars in illiquid global real estate assets to retail and institutional investors in an open marketplace, right? And greater liquidity is good because it allows you to cash out. It makes your business less risky, improves the speed and reduces the cost of investment transactions because it automates a lot of that exchange process, reducing administrative burdens by requiring the intervention of fewer intermediaries. It reduces risks of transaction-related risks, for example, you know, wiring funds, right? Um, if you know that, you know, it will only exchange if the money is already there, then because of the contract, then you don't have to get into wiring funds risks and how do you get paid? There's all these considerations that go into transacting a real estate property that you know people don't always think about upfront, but that's where tokenization and using this blockchain technology can come in. And obviously there's 
the biggest hurdle here is the regulation. How is the U.S. government going to respond? That's kind of, you know, one of the biggest deals in any investment sector that you look in, especially something that's brand new. If the government says no, 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 obviously it's a big problem. But, you know, there there seems to be a movement with the new SEC chairman, Gary Gensler, to start to regulate cryptocurrencies and this blockchain technology. And while for those of you who are like, oh, I want to buy into Bitcoin so that the government can never know my money again, maybe, maybe not. But having government approval is not a bad thing for an individual investor who doesn't necessarily care about all that privacy stuff. It allows you to know that this stuff is going to be safer and not going to be shut down by the government one day. So that is something that really is on the horizon here, right? We have bills called like the Blockchain Innovation Act and the Digital Taxonomy Act. These have not passed. They've only passed the House. They have not passed the Senate. But these bills are coming to create a better transparent regulation for these things. And I mean, if you see tokenization of real estate coming out, man, I think it's going to really actually be super beneficial for the price of, of real estate. And it doesn't really it doesn't really explain it here, Tyler, but just think of it this way. When you have more access to something, it is easier to buy, right? Because obviously it's hard for most people to buy real estate right now because they don't have a million dollars to put down on a building or they don't even have tens of thousands of dollars to put down on a building. They might have a thousand dollars to buy one token, right? So if you have this new access, to buy real estate, especially commercial real estate, all of a sudden, you know, there can be more demand, right? It unlocks latent demand for these illiquid capital properties that were just sitting around before. And when you unlock demand, what happens? Prices and valuations go up. So generally, this should be a good thing for the real estate industry. And I'm very much looking forward to continued exploration of this process of the tokenization of commercial real estate into the future. Yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting to think about what blockchain could really do in this market. So that was a great overview, Andy. Thank you so much. Sarantha said that sounds both awesome and scary. Uh, Miguel is saying, wow, this could be a game changer. I, I totally agree. I mean, it... The, again, the possibilities, the, the future of commercial real estate, it, which is why it's so fun. That's why every week we're talking about the future of CRE and we're talking about prop tech on this show. It's pretty amazing to think where the industry is headed and how much it could potentially change just in the next five to 10 years alone, let alone how's it going to look in 20, right? Um, just because of how, how rapidly everything is evolving in the industry. It's pretty, it's pretty exciting to be a part of. Well, that is it for today's episode. Thank you all for joining us if you are here live on YouTube and for jumping into the comment section and, and uh, letting us know your thoughts on everything. Um, if you are watching on YouTube, don't forget to like and subscribe so you get notified every time we go live, which is every Monday at 5.30 p.m. Central. If you're on the podcast, don't forget to rate and review so that we can continue to get this show in front of more and more potential commercial real estate investors. And we will see you all next week.